Welcome to The Honest Pour with John Lennart, where we go beyond the bottle to connect you with the people and places that make each wine so unique. Without the name Mandavi, Napa Valley would still be a world-class wine-producing region, but it certainly wouldn't be the same as it is today. In 1966, after the much-publicized split with his brother, Robert Mandavi and his son Michael started the Robert Mandavi Winery, and the rest, as they say, is history. And what a history it is. After the family took the company public in 1994, then selling the winery to Constellation Brands in 2004, Michael Mondavi left the boardroom and returned to the vineyard when he purchased property on Atlas Peak. Today, Michael, along with his wife and children, continue the family tradition of making wine in Napa Valley. I sat down with Michael to talk about his family's colorful history and what that legacy brings to the wines he makes today. This episode of The Honest Pour is sponsored in part by Fooditor.com, bringing you the stories of Chicago's chefs, restaurants, and people who make food all over town. Fooditor.com. Hi, welcome to The Honest Pour. I'm John Lennart. Joining me today is Michael Mondavi of Michael Mondavi Family. He is the founder and coach. Welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to be with you. What was it like growing up Mondavi? Well, growing up Mondavi, Mondavi was the same as Smith or Jones. No one knew Mondavi from any other name at that time. The family company was Charles Krug Winery. And so Krug was the brand that people associated with up through my completion of the university. And in 1966, my father and I started the Robert Mondavi Winery. And then through the 70s and 80s, the popularity of the name Mondavi grew. So it's my kids that really had the, the uh, opportunity or the problem of growing up under a name that's also a brand name. So you were with Robert Mondavi Winery. It went public in the 90s. Yes. And then through the sale of the Constellation. Right, we, we went public in 1994 to really support the growth of the business. And then by 2004, we, my brother, sister, and I decided that we were running a big company, but we were not doing the type of viticulture or winemaking that we really enjoyed and loved doing. You ended up more on the business side than the wine we side. We were all involved in business, working with financial analysts, with the attorneys, with the accountants, and it was nothing we really loved to do. So we said, let's either buy ourselves back or sell the company. The good bad news was we couldn't afford to buy ourselves back. We were sure. too successful. Too big of a company. So we said, okay. Let's sell the company and reinvent ourselves. So in 2004, is that when you started Michael Mondavi Family? I began it actually in late 2003, and uh, I resigned from Robert Mondavi Corporation prior to the sale uh, so that I could start my new business and not have the problem of golden handcuffs or whatever. But my son and daughter and wife, uh, we all love the wine business. My son and daughter were very interested in continuing in the fine wine business in Napa Valley, but in a small way. We only have literally 120 acres of vineyard. So we decided, let's sell Robert Mondavi and let's start a small family business and then work with the Frescobaldi family as well to import their wines and, and, and produce good wines together. So obviously you, you had decades of experience, uh, legendary experience working at Robert Mondavi. What are the greatest things you took away from that and put into Michael Mondavi family? I think the greatest things was listen to your customer, trust your palate, 
Do not accept excuses for the quality or style of the wine. You will be judged by the quality of the wine. The consumer in America has an amazing taste memory. Most people in our industry, unfortunately, I don't think respect the consumer's taste and taste memory. And I learned over the years that if you change a blend of a wine, whether you blend it down to try to stretch it, or whether you even try to improve it and add some additional barrel aging or whatever, if you change it too quickly, your loyal customer is going to say, why did you change my wine? And I think the most valuable thing was respect the customer's palate. Obviously, Robert Mondavi, you're getting fruit from all over. But you know, when you think of Robert Mondavi, you think of Tokolan. Yes. It's right there. You can't help but... Surrounds the wine. You can, yeah, you can't help but associate the two. And, you know, you're on the bench line there and on the valley floor. Now your properties are more up all, the hill, yeah? All hillside. And it's interesting, my brother's properties are all up in the hillside as well. And it was in the mid-80s that my brother and I said, you know, the valley floor produces beautiful wine. There's no question. But we want more structure in our wines. And... You get more structure, more backbone from the hillsides. And so we started uh, acquiring some hillside vineyards in the late 80s and 90s. And as we saw, as we really learned how to grow grapes in the hillside, which is a different mindset than the valley floor, you have much more firm tannins in the hillside. And you have to try to produce a more gentle wine in the hillside on the valley floor, you're trying to produce a bigger wine. So the valley floor tends to be the big lusher, kind yes. of voluptuous fruit. But without the structure, without the backbone. On the hillside, sometimes you have too much structure, too much backbone. And so it's been a wonderful learning experience and exciting to see how we are learning to produce phenomenal wines from the hillsides that are powerful but gentle. Tell, tell me about that process. How did you figure out what you needed to do to soften those tannins, to kind of settle that austerity and bring out the fruit? It, it really started, I think, with my grandmother and grandfather. And my grandfather saying, you have to always be in the vineyard. You have to taste your grapes. My grandmother saying, if you serve wine to family and friends at a meal, make a wine that tastes good, and if it tastes good, they'll drink two, three, or four glasses. But if they only drink one glass, go back to work. And I found that in some of the early vintages we were producing in the hillsides, they were wonderful wines, but you need to put them in the cellar for 20 or 30 years to soften and to age. Using my grandmother's little statement, at the young age, they didn't taste good, they were too sharp. So talking with my son and daughter, how do we get a softness without giving up the strength and structure of this wine? And we learned through trial and error, really, walking the vineyards, tasting the grapes, and then looking at the grape seed and chewing a grape seed that's green versus chewing a grape seed that's like matchstick brown. The green seed is harsh, sharp, bitter tannin. The brown seed is soft, firm, tannin. And when you ferment the same grapes, one with green seed, one with the brown seeds, the alcohol will extract tannin from those seeds during the fermentation process. Sure. 
and you have the finished wine, same vineyard, say four days difference in maturity of the grape and the maturity of the skin, of the seed going brown rather than the green harsh tannin. You can drink and enjoy the brown seed wine that's harvested three, four days later, 20 years earlier than you can enjoy the traditional old firm tannin that has to be in the cellar. And is that something you were able to taste in the seed in the vineyard or, or is it a matter of trial and error in the lab? We, we learned the big difference first in the vineyard. We then said, okay, let's pick these grapes today and make a trial 50 gallon lot. And let's wait two more days or three until that seed turns full brown. Pick those two, three days later. Identical processing, identical aging, put them in a bottle, let them age a year and taste them and see what happens. And it was a novice who didn't know about wine would taste the two and say, ooh, I like this one, the other one's too harsh. Wow. The wine expert would say, <clears throat> oh, this is very nice, I'll put it in my cellar for 20 years to the one with the green seed. And he'd say, this is beautiful, I'll have it for dinner tonight. And nothing more than a couple days more hang time. A couple days more hang time. and. I've been making wine for 45 years up to that date and started really in the vineyards. And it was almost a, a whole new, wow. I just learned something that I should have learned 30 years ago. That's, that's something. Tell me about Michael Mondavi family. You make a number of different wines, a number of different lines. Tell me about them. Well, Michael Mondavi family estate is um, our, our two hillside vineyards, the Howell Mountain Vineyard um, which is at about 1,250 to 1,350 feet. It is just um, east, up in the hills of the town of St. Helena. Uh, has alluvial soils with volcanic rock. The Atlas Peak Vineyard is about five miles south of that on the same eastern ridge above Napa Valley. Almost all volcanic rock and sand and gravel. The t style of wines that you'll grow same Cabernet grown in those two different will give you two totally different sure. Cabernets. So we decided let's have three different quote subfamilies of wine. The Isabel Mondavi wines are the three grape varieties that my wife likes. Rosé of Cabernet, Chardonnay, Pinot Noir. They're made to enjoy today, to complement the food, but not take center stage on the table. The emblem wine are wines that are made by my son and daughter for their generation. I want the Chardonnay, I want the Cabernet, buy it on Thursday, enjoy it Thursday night or Friday. If I want to put it in the cellar for a couple years, we can put it in the cellar, it'll even improve, but I don't want to have to buy a wine and put it in the cellar. I want it perfect when I buy it today. 99% of wine, right? Yes. And then the Animo and the M, which are more of my generation and my style, are to be in the company of the great classic first growth Bordeaux. Much more structure. They're enjoyable today. They'll be far more enjoyable 5, 10, 20 years from now through the proper aging. And so we wanted to have kind of three different family occasion or family styles of wines with the Isabel 
for more of the Burgundian style, light, enjoyable wines. The uh, emblem for, again, my children's generation. And then the more classic, traditional Cabernet Sauvignons of Anamo and Am. Both, both of the vineyards on the, uh, on the Vaca side, why, why not the yes. other side? The other side is very good. Uh, the Mayacamas Range, uh, Halma, or, uh, Spring Mountain, etc., are beautiful growing areas. They get a lot more rainfall. I have personal concerns with uh, especially uh, fall rainfalls and mold. Sure, sure. We believe in organic and natural farming. I don't want to have to use sprays or things like so that. So all organic, all natural. All organic, views. all natural. And the, the eastern hills are much drier. They get about a third of the rainfall that the western hills do. And there's much less vegetation on the eastern hills. Whereas you have a lot of cedar and redwood trees yeah. in the, in the, uh, on the western hills. The trees block the wind. If you don't have a lot of trees and you just have grapevines in the rolling hills, as the day warms up, the warm breezes flow air up the So hill. on the vodka side, you have less disease pressure and less mold pressure? And we, we believe that strongly. Uh, I've not, we don't have vineyards on the western side. So no data so to I back that up, right? Yeah. Data. But, you know, we, there's moss on the trees on, on the western side. And there's no trees and no moss. I mean, yeah. much drier on that side. Yes. You work with Tokalan, one of the most famous vineyards in yeah. all of Napa Valley. You took something from Tokalan, didn't you? Oh, sure did. Tell me about that. Tokalan has the most historic vineyards in Napa Valley. They were planted in the mid 1800s. 1853 was the first year that H.W. Crabb planted his vineyard. And he planted some Sauvignon Blanc back then on the old traditional St. George rootstock. And there are still vines that were planted in the 1850s that are still alive in the Oakville area on the Tokalon Vineyard. And when our family had that, that was a little jewel that we called I-Block for the Fumé Blanc. And where is I-Block like, compared right to in the one? in the heart of the Tokalon Vineyard. Okay. It's essentially about 400 yards south of the Robert Mondavi Winery on the west side of Highway 29. Sure. And um, the vineyard manager called my son about seven years ago and said, Rob, we're going to be taking out a lot of that old traditional uh, Tokalon vineyard. Would you like some of the budwood from it? And he said, absolutely. So he called the University of California at Davis, found out where he could get the traditional historic rootstock that was used in the 1800s and bought the rootstock, got the budwood, planted the rootstock, grafted the vine, and we now have all of three acres <laughs> of this heritage Sauvignon Blanc. And we're using that as a mother vineyard to continue to propagate that heritage clone because the flavor and style of that Sauvignon Blanc is much different than the new style that's far more pro prolific. They'll get eight, nine tons per acre on the, the new Sauvignon Blanc and the new vigorous rootstock. We'll be lucky if we get three tons to the acre. And that we're going to get three times the flavor. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. It, it's, it, it's interesting, you were talking earlier about how each of the lines of wine are sort of for different parts of your family. Yeah. It's interesting that, you know, a lot of times there's 
pressure on family to keep a business, particularly an agricultural business, Mm -hmm. in the family. Kids lose interest in it. Uh, Obviously, that's not the case with your family. Well, we're very fortunate that uh, our son and daughter both are very passionate in the business. My son really loves the the vineyards, the production, the winemaking. My daughter enjoys that and enjoys making the final blends with her brother. But she really enjoys the relationship with some of the families that we represent as an import company. And she loves the marketing and public relations aspect of the wines. Which was kind of where you came from in the family. Well, I started started in, in the production and then moved into the to the marketing and selling and um, every, when my brother joined the business in 1974-75, my father said, Michael, what part of the business do you like and what part do you want? Because I'd been with him for eight years prior. And I said, Dad, I love every aspect of the business. I really enjoy it. I'm rewarded working in it. Whatever Tim would prefer doing, I'll take whatever else is there. And he really was passionate for the production. So I then focused and concentrated on the marketing, selling, and, and management of the business. What's your total production today? Our total production today is about 35,000 cases with all of our different uh, Napa brands. We were big once. We're not going to make that mistake. The Isabel Mandavi wines are very modest in size. The Emblem is really the largest brand that we have. That uh, The Cabernet is about 11,000 cases uh, and, and, and growing in the cellar we have a, a bit more of that and each year the vineyards are expanding a bit. Um, but our objective is to produce wines that taste great and that we enjoy marketing and selling. Our objective is not growth for the sake of growth. That's evil. There's a relationship between Animo and M. Yes. What, what's that relationship? The relationship between Animo and M is on our 15-acre vineyard at about 1,350 feet elevation in the Atlas Peak area, uh, there are rolling hills. And there are five knolls that are the crest or crown of each of those little hills. We found over the years from tasting the grapes and making the wine from those individual sections that those five crowns made a wine that was just spectacularly head and shoulders above the other. Rich, structured to compete with the greatest wines in the world. So my son suggested instead of using that to blend with the balance of that vineyard just for one wine called M, he said, why don't we have M be just wine from those five crowns? And we'll then blend the balance of the vineyard and call that animo, which is an Italian or Spanish word for soul or spirit. And so we'll have the two tiers, the, the wine to compete with the best of the best and one just slightly below to compete with, say, the second or third growth of Bordeaux. So the animo gives you an expression of the vineyard and of the site, yes. but the M is for lack of a better word, the reserve yes. of the vineyard. or for the ultra-special occasion to enjoy with family and friends. What kind of price range are we talking about? Re- the, retail. The M at retail is about $195 a bottle, and the the Animo is about $85 a bottle. Okay, so about where you'd expect Napa Valley Cabernet to be. Yes. I always believe that wine is still a beverage. It's not perfume. Right. It's something that you want. If the wine's good, you're going to want to have two or three glasses with a meal and you don't want those two or three glasses to totally break the bank. When wines get over 
500, 1,000. Yeah, you're talking drinking antiques or drinking... Investment. A, yeah, <laughs> and there are hundreds of great wines in the 75 to $200 bracket. You don't ever have to go over that. So, shall we taste some wine? I would love to taste some wine with you. What do we have? Let's start with the Animo Heritage Sauvignon Blanc. Okay, so you're calling it Sauvignon Blanc. Yes. But that's different than Robert Mondavi called it. Robert Mondavi, we called it and we named it Fumé Blanc. Why was that? And we named it Fumé Blanc because back in the 60s, you could not give Sauvignon Blanc away. No one would buy it. It was, my father believed that Sauvignon Blanc was even better quality and, and, and better with food back then than Chardonnay. You couldn't sell it. So he said, I want to, we have to, it's a great wine, but we have to change the name. People are afraid of the name. So we went to the Alexis Lachine Encyclopedia of Wines, and we saw that in the Loire Valley, they had Blanc Fumé and Puy Fumé and things like that. And we said, well, we can't totally plagiarize it. So instead of Blanc Fumé, we'll call it Fumé Blanc. And below that, we put dry Sauvignon Blanc in small italics. And it sold like hotcakes and was on allocation for over 20 years. No kidding. Yeah. <laughs> and so sometimes the name kills the wine because people have a perception. Sure. So um, with this. Look, look at anything that had to do with Merlot in the mid-90s, yes. right? And this is, this is the, the, the Sauvignon Blanc rootstock out of Iblock in Tokelon. Yes. This, or not rootstock. Uh, the, 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 the Budwood. Budwood, yeah. We, we wanted to call it Sauvignon Blanc rather than Fumé Blanc because this is from the heritage Sauvignon Blanc originally planted in the 1850s. And nobody knew about Fumé Blanc in the 1850s. It wasn't until the 19, late 60s that they even heard Fumé Blanc. So, Very floral, a lot of tropical fruit. And, and it, it has a, a richer character in the nose, more layers of flavor in the nose than most Sauvignon Blancs. Most Sauvignon Blancs are really crisp. I think because of this old budwood the wine is richer, and you'll notice layers of flavor in the mouth as you taste it. Definitely, there, there's still an intense minerality, though. And I've tried enjoying this wine, everything from shellfish, yeah. raw oysters, lobster, with steak. It has enough body, it even yeah. stands up beautifully with red meat. For sure, for sure. Great to see. Super long finish. Yeah, good tropical fruit and citrus, yeah. and oh, really makes your mouth water. It's, it, it's yummy. My grandmother taught me years ago, if someone wants a second or third glass of wine, that's a wine that tastes good. If they only drink one glass, go back to work. Yeah, for sure. So we always want to make sure that the wines invite you back to the glass. Really bright. And how much of this is made? On this first vintage is only 166 cases. This one, not a lot. Very small. Does it make it outside of the California area? Oh, absolutely. Or? In fact, we, we have uh, uh, a small amount available here in Chicago. And we, we didn't want to just keep it in California. We wanted to have a, a few cases go to each of the top five cities in the United States. So what do we have next? Well, let's do the, should we do the emblem Chardonnay or you want to go the red? No, let's do the emblem Chardonnay next. Rich gold color on this wine. Yeah, the, this wine is, um, the grapes are from the Carneris region in Sonoma. Okay. A very cool wine growing region. Uh, right on the San Francisco Bay and on the Sonoma side of Carneris, it's slightly cooler, cooler than on the Napa side, which is why we selected the Sonoma side. 
and the uh, mm. uh, before we harvest the grapes, we literally walk the field, taste the grapes, and when the grapes say, "Ooh, I'm yummy, pick me," that's when we pick the that's, grapes. That's Chardonnay. A hundred percent Chardonnay. A hundred percent is barrel fermented. About a third of the barrels are new French oak, and two thirds or one third is one year old, and one third is two years old. Okay. We don't like all new oak because the new oak would too then become too yeah. forward. It's like a chef using too much, too many herbs or spices in a dish. Oak should be there to complement the Chardonnay, not overpower the Chardonnay. And 100% malactic? Yes, 100% malactic. We had the, the cooler growing area, we had the higher natural acidity, so the malolactic fermentation helped to lower the total acidity, give another roundness yeah, to the you, wine. You think a lot of times you hear oak and malolactic and California Chardonnay, and you know, all of a sudden this, this thing comes to mind. That's not what this is. No, there's this a super more, bright acidity, there's great yeah. green apple and citrus, and again, very mouth-watering. Much more Burgundian in style. Mm -hmm. um, the Burgundian, the bur white Burgundies complement food. And you'll enjoy the wine. You'll enjoy a second or third glass with food. Many of my neighbors in California with heavy oak and, and higher alcohol in their Chardonnays, you can't enjoy a second or third glass with the food. It's too much. It's too much. It's overpowering, too rich. Mm -hmm. And you get tired of it. Wine should always invite you back. This, this wine definitely does. Yeah, simply delicious. and. Great structure and not, not too rich, right acidity. Uh, again, good minerality. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting getting that balance that you just described. Because it's easy to add richness through oak aging, whatever. It's easy to have more acidity. Getting the right balance of the variety, the flavor of the variety, Chardonnay, the right oak to give it a little more richness, and the right natural acidity to have a crisp finish. When you taste it, there's harmony, and if you don't do it right, there's no harmony. Uh, what's the production? The production on that is only about 500 cases this sure. first year. And is this the first year? It's the first year for the Chardonnay from Emblem. We're now on our fourth year of the Cabernet. Mm -hmm. My son did not want to start doing the Chardonnay with Emblem until he was confident of the vineyard and knew that we had those grapes long term. Ah, makes perfect sense. And what do we have here finally? This is the 2013 Animo, and this is a blend of the majority of the Atlas Peak Vineyard. The uh, grapes are hand harvested. We crush, ferment. The fermentation takes about five days. At the end of the fermentation, we seal the tank and allow skin, seeds, and juice to remain together for another approximately three weeks. And the reason is, through that osmosis, the juice will extract more flavor and body from the skins and the seeds. Interesting. And we then draw that off, let it settle, and then siphon it from the tank into the barrel to begin the barrel aging that lasts about 18 months. About 65, 70% of the barrels are new French oak. It's almost the inverse of the Chardonnay. Yeah, yeah. And a third of them are once or twice used. If you had to describe the terroir of, of your Atlas Peak vineyard, what would that be? Volcanic rock, gravel, and sand. Very little sandy loam. Very little organic matter in the soil. And in fact, we use our own, we produce our own natural compost from the skins and seeds of the grapes that, and, and stems of the grapes mm -hmm. that we crush. 
And every other year we have to bring compost through the vineyard in Atlas Peak to add more nutrients. We believe in, again, natural and organic and sustainable farming. Uh, the easy and inexpensive thing to do is call up the chemical company sure. and order the fertilizer and go for it. My grandfather told me years ago, my most important job I had was to make sure that the quality of the soil of our vineyard lands was healthier when I passed it to my son and daughter than I received it from my father or uncle. And that is the way that, that we always focus on the vineyards. We, if, if, if this will help make the vineyard healthier for the future, we do it. If it does not make it healthier for the future, we do not do it. I'm noticing that the wines all are, they all have great structure. They're all about structure. You know, it's a lot of times you think California, particularly Napa Cab, you know, you kind of got like these fruit bomb wines over yeah, a while. They're too opulent. Yeah, too opulent. All of your wines, they're all about, they all have great structure. I think it, tasting blind, you'd be hard pressed to pick these out as Napa. And that's not a bad thing. I'm not, well, not, that, not that there's anything I, bad about Napa fruit, but I, you know I, what I say. I, I like the Napa fruit and the wines. 20 years ago better than I like the majority of them today because they were not those fruit bombs that were so rich and so opulent and so heavy. We make wine that, to complement food and the enjoyment through a meal. And those fruit bombs don't, don't no, fit no, that they're not about food. at all. And I, I, I always say I love like 80 style Napa Cab. There's a little yeah. bit of green, it's a little grippy, a little austere, right. great for food, yes. and that, that's what I'm looking for. I wouldn't say any of your wines have that greenness, but it, it's about that structure and that body, and they're absolutely beautiful. Thank you so much well, to taste for tasting with pleasure. me. A pleasure. Wonderful tasting with you, and I look forward to welcoming you to Napa Valley. Thanks, and uh, if you ever uh, do travel to Napa Valley, look up Michael Mondavi family. Thank uh, you very Thank much. you so much for your time, sir. It was a pleasure. It was great. Enjoyed it. For John's tasting notes on the wines from this episode, go to www.thehonestpoorpod.com. Make sure you catch every episode by subscribing to The Honest Pour with John Lennart at iTunes, Stitcher, or the Google Play Store. Also, be sure to like us on Facebook at The Honest Pour with John Lennart and follow us on Twitter at The Honest Pour. This has been The Honest Pour with John Lennart. Music by Kevin McLeod.